Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Hey, Ray. Yo, what's going on, Marcus? You know, one of the many things I enjoy about doing the imbalanced history of rock and roll is that we get to read a lot of books as part. A lot of books. Of our knowledge growth and part of our learning. And we recently, by somebody who liked our podcast, got sent two copies of the book Hunky Dory. Who Knew by Lawrence Myers, the best I can remember from 20 years at the heart of 60s and 70s rock and pop. And we both enjoyed the read. It's a trippy ride. It's fun. It's all over the place. It gets crazy at times. And you're like, who knew? And you did. Who knew, which is, it comes up, it's the theme of uh, the book and and the podcast, which is sponsored, as always, by our good friends at Kirk and I Brewery in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014, and by... 1CBD. Check them out at 1CBD.com and find out about all their amazing products. Yeah, man, what a wild ride. So let's just get to it. Let's get on the phone with Lawrence. He is the author of Hunky Dory, who knew a figure in the 60s and 70s and beyond in the entertainment business. And he is our guest, Lawrence Myers. At the very beginning of your book, you did something I've never seen before. You tell people that if you don't want to know all about the times in my early days growing up through all my early experience, just skip the first six chapters. And I never heard of someone doing that before. Something I always do when I read a book, if it's got the history of great-grandparents, I'm not really that interested, so I'm inclined to skip it. And I just gave that option to my readers. But that background gives us an idea of who you are and how you became who you are. You go from your early days working the stalls and tell how you got into accounting, and that's your ability that opens the music biz up to you, starting with Mickey Most. Indeed. Indeed. One of the very best ever. We've already said... How did that all come together? Well, I'd, I'd gone into partnership with a guy called Ellis Goodman. I had had terrible training as an accountant. I didn't want to do it anyway. I wasn't interested. And I, I, I'd been introduced to Ellis. And Ellis was on an aeroplane going to Glasgow on business. And he sat next to a guy who, said, who told Ellis that he was going into business. He was going to back a record company by a guy called Mickey Most, and they would need an accountant. And Ellis came back and told me about this. I got very excited because I knew who Mickey Most was. I'd bought House of the Rising Sun. You know, I was very into music. 
Ellis was not. Uh, he's a lovely guy. We're still close friends. Anyway, so Ellis, basically, Ellis got Mickey as a client, and I, I stole him. I said to Ellis, you, you can't have him. What do you care anyway? And I got Mickey as a client, and we got on like a house on fire. Um, we liked each other personally. I loved the music. I understood the music. I was a fan of the music. So it just worked very well. Now, there's a part of your book about an infamous flight you took with Mickey Most and Andrew Lou Goldham where you sparked up in first class. Is that right? Well, in those days, you were allowed to smoke. Mickey and Andrew individually were lunatics and together uh, absolutely lunatics. And yes, I mean, <laughs> Andrew produced this enormous split. I think an old 747. Anyway, and sitting on the other side of the aisle was this young lady. And he offered it to her, being a gentleman. And um, she declined because she pointed out her father was the captain pilot of the flight and didn't think it would be a good idea. I guess not. Were there other stories with Mickey Most that you left out of the book that were absolutely insane along I, I, those types of I, lines? I don't think so. If I, if, I, if I left them out, it's because I shouldn't have put them in. Fair enough. Um, <laughs> You said that um, you drifted apart in the book later on. Why did you drift apart? And is there anything about Mickey that was very special that you left out of the book or any special moments? Uh, the reason we parted, I was an accountant. I had this quiet in a very short period of time, this huge amount of knowledge, and most importantly, a huge amount of context. And even more importantly than that, by association, um, I had some prestige in the music business in the UK mm -hmm. because I represented mm -hmm. the Rolling Stones and all these other people. And, you know, it, it, on, on my side of the business, you're as important as those that you represent. Mm -hmm. So I had decided, because I hated being an accountant, I've touched on it before, and I wasn't very good at it. I decided after just five years in practice with Edis as a partner, I decided I wanted to leave and go into the music business full-time. And my relationship with Mickey was, uh, even though I had shares in his company, it was a sort of as an accountant conciliary, and that was not going to work. Right. So I sort of said, you know, somebody else in the practice, in the accounting practice, will take over your affairs, Mickey. And so from my point of view, there's no acrimony at all. I think Mickey, from his point, I think he was peeved. Not that I did anything wrong, but he, he was peeved. I was going off, you know, it was like a, a, a lover who leaves. Um, uh -huh. And I was going off and starting on my own and starting a production company. Um, he, he could not in any way have been concerned about competition because he was Mickey Most. And I was just, you know, a little fisher who was starting up. A production company, but in any event, um, we, we, we 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 sort of very quickly parted. And when I would bump into him socially, he was quite cold. I don't know. Maybe what I should. I don't know. I mean, I've I've just thought about this as I'm speaking to you, and I never thought about it before. Maybe he felt that he gave me such a start, and he did unquestionably. Mm -hmm. I should have said to him, do you want to be part of my business? I don't know. I've never thought about it. Your stories about all the earliest days in the music business, most people don't know, and that's why they should read the book. It's a fun ride, and you were there. You were that kind of guy. If I may give it a, 
a plug, if you want to buy it in America, the best way to buy it is the bookdepository.com. That's the cheapest and best, bookdepository.com. Well, Hunky Dory is in the title of the book, so obviously there's a lot of talk about your time working with David Bowie, but you talk about your production companies, your publishing and film. All of that came from your early days. He did. He didn't do bad, the kids. Another fellow named Jagger came to you, and he seemed to understand his own pop mortality, knew he only had a few years, but I think it went pretty well for him in the long run. I always had an affinity for songwriters. Before I was involved in the music business, I was always interested, not, you know, Frank Sinatra sang the song, who wrote that song? And, and I, I was something of a student, if you like. When I went into the business, I was always attracted to the people who wrote the songs. Because, let's face it, without the written word, whether it's a song or a page or a TV script or a film script, there is no product. I had signed to my company, who was making records for me, a very, very talented uh, record producer called Tony McCauley, who at that time was probably, probably in the UK, better only to Mickey Most, in terms of making pop records. We went to the uh, Ivan Novello Awards. There was an award to this guy no one ever heard of called David Bowie, who had written this song called Space Oddity, and it was in a category of novelty songs. <laughs> and anyway, I listened to this song as, as, as part of the you know, proceedings of the evening, and I thought it's such an interesting song, and he's an interesting songwriter. And the thing that interested me very much, and later on, very much when I start when I start to chat with David and listen to decide whether I want to take him on and I listen to his demos and his work etc. He didn't just write love songs. In fact, he didn't write love songs, and I like that. And the other thing I liked about him is that he sang in an English accent because mm-hmm. I used to find it amusing, not annoying, but amusing. Like uh, Eric Burden of the Animals, fantastic singer, fantastic band, and he was from Newcastle. And when you speak to him in the studio, you know, before before the recording started, but it'd be this broad, Geordie accent, um, talking right. about this, that, and the other. And then the light would go on, and he would start singing like it was from the Mississippi Delta. You know, everyone's sort of copying the Americans. Uh, whereas Bowie didn't copy anyone. He was an original, and he was a great songwriter. And I signed him because I thought he was a great songwriter. Rubber band. There's a rubber band that plays tunes out of tune. In 
the library garden Sunday afternoon while a little chappy waves a golden I had been to see him perform there was maybe 300 people there not very interested and he was awful you know he had no stage presence I've heard that about him and I signed him because I thought what a great songwriter interesting interesting songwriter and and when I spoke to him an interesting man we passed up on the stand we spoke of was and when I recently saw the documentary Finding Fame, and it kind of runs parallel to the time that you were working with Bowie. What's your greatest recollection from those days that made you believe he was going to get there no matter what? Well, I tell you, without taking uh, without taking any credit to myself, because his wife, Angie, was very important. And I think David probably would have done nothing. He would have carried on with it. But it was Angie who said, um, you, know, you, you know, we have to move. We've got to move on. Nothing's happening. We've got an album out. Nothing's happened with it. And he was brought to me by a guy called DeFries, who they were introduced to as a lawyer. In the book, you tell the story great. It's how the whole thing evolved in the main man, and then when Bowie left. About that, did you ever wish that you held on to 10% of your interest in David Bowie? Well, of course. A wise man once said, nobody ever went broke on the deals they don't do. You know, I was a married man with three kids. I had a life. Uh, I didn't want to hang out with David. And it was great. And Tony did a wonderful job in protecting David and developing him. So here I am in my office in London. David has signed. No record company wants him. I risk putting up the money myself to finance what turned out to be Ziggy Stardust. And that turned out well, even though when we put Ziggy out, it did not do well. It's only when we put out Hunky Dory and David got this persona. When he got a character... It became great. And that was, as far as I'm concerned, throughout his career, in his public life, not his performing life, but in his public life, he always had a mask. And the mask was David Bowie. You said in the book, David began his early days singing like Anthony Newley. How much did... Yes, he did. How much did people like Anthony Newley and Mark Bolin... And some of those other performers have an impact on David Bowie's stage show and his growth as a performer at that time. Well, I, I don't know about Mark Bolan uh, in terms of being an influence on David. I think the reason why um, Newley was an interest, because Newley was an actor who made records. And I think that that interested him, David. You also mentioned that in the book and when we've been talking that you remember when David Bowie was really kind of not good on stage and made this transformation. Yeah. Do you remember the show where he transformed and do you remember specifically when it was? Yeah, well, I, it was a show at the Rainbow when suddenly he came out you know, as Ziggy. It's hard to say, I mean, say when the moment was, but I was there during the evolution. Yeah. You know, he would come to the office, he would talk about what he was going to do and character. Mm-hmm. 
mm-hmm. with, with Angie and, and, and DeFreeze. Cool. And he would talk about what he was going to do and show us photographs and make them. So it wasn't like a wow surprise to me. Well, Marcus, we can't go to Crooked Eye to have a brew just yet as we are still in isolation mode. And the boys at Crooked Eye have been busy, man. They've been in construction mode. What have they been building in construction mode? They've been building a stage with soundproofing. Oh, the Crooked Eye Band is going to be so happy when they open the brew pub in Hapro. While you can't go into the brewery now, they are doing live online performances in the Crooked Eye spirit. We're talking about Crooked Eye Brewery in the heart of Hapro, pouring the cure for what ails you since 2014. And we salute Pete and Paul and Jeff. They keep brewing and they keep pouring, even though they can't let you in to sit and sip. And one of the cool things they're still brewing, Marcus, is you can not only get your growler filled, they've got 32-ounce crowlers and 16-ounce singles and four-packs, so you can still get your crooked eye fixed during the COVID-19 pandemic. Sweet. That's very cool that they're able to uh, not only refill your growlers, but give you those crowler cans or four-packs if you so desire, because you don't want to knock back an entire big growler in one sitting. Right in the heart of Hatboro, Crooked Eye Brewery. Can't wait to get there and have one in person and we thank them for supporting us through this whole nightmare that we've been dealing with here with the pandemic thank you to crooked eye right in the heart of hatboro you have been amazing thank you we are back from our break and talking to lawrence myers the author of Hunky Dory, Who Knew? Well, I want to talk more about the Who Knew part, because you did so many amazing things in all different parts of the business. What were your favorite things that you pulled off? This favorite, enjoyable, and this favorite, um, I guess, of things I did that were successful. Dealing with the latter, the thing that I, I, I'm most proud of in the music business is actually not, not launching David, but David Bowie on the world, although, of course, I am very proud of that. But Tony McCauley, who I'd mentioned before, was a very, very successful songwriter. He had signed a publishing deal with American publishers called The Schroders, and it was totally iniquitous. I mean, it really, really was very, very unfair. So I, I, I went to counsel, and he said that the contract was very unfair, but at the law, as the law stood, was legal. And he said, someone should try and change it. And this is probably a good case. But you have to be brave. So I spoke to Tony McCauley, who equally had to be brave, because you know, he, was, he, was the, uh, he was the participant. I took that case, and we ended up, went to the House of Lords, which is the equivalent of the Supreme Court in the UK. Right. And we won. Uh, we won. And Tony was free from the contract. And that, con- that case, which is the Macaulay v. Schroeder case, has been used, it, it changed the music business in favor of writers, in favor of artists generally, particularly in favor of writers. And as you will have gathered, I had a very passion for songwriters. And that case was used even in America. You know, El- Elton John, there was an Elton John case against, against um, John Reed. It was used. So I'm very proud right. of that. Yeah, you had a number of those who knew things. And you mentioned John Reed earlier, and I want to talk about that brush you had with managing Queen. John Reed ended up managing them, 
but it was almost you. Yeah. The reason why the book is subtitled Who Knew is it started off being written hunky-dory. And as I was writing it, I kept saying to myself, who knew? You know, because I've, I've written it 40 years after the event, and in that 40 years, things have happened that made those events in the 60s and 70s to be of some historical interest. But, you know, who knew? So Queen was being managed by the Sheffield brothers who owned studios, Trident Studios in London. And I got a call one day and they said, um, they're managing Queen, they, they want to sell the contract. Am I interested? And the Sheffield brothers were like, can we do this today? Because, you know, we've got to do it by next week. And I said, look, I have to meet with the guys. You can't, I can't just turn up and say I'm your new manager. It doesn't work like that. I have to have a relationship. It, it became obvious to me, the Queen, they were about to leave. And this was the last minute attempt, you know, to get some money out of it. Many years later, uh, I was talking to Brian May, and he was very, very critical, you know, of the Sheffield brothers. Rightly or wrongly, I don't. So that's how I turned down Queen. Who knew? Marcus and Ray on the imbalance history of rock and roll with Lawrence Myers. I want to jump back a couple steps. When you helped Mickey Mouse form Rack, it was a label, management, and publishing, which was brilliant for the times. And I want to say, you guys had no roadmap for what you were doing, for managing all of this, which makes it even more brilliant. There you meet Peter Grant. Now, tell us something about Mr. Grant that we don't know about him from that time in his life. Uh, that time in his life, Peter Grant knew Mickey Mouse because Mickey used to appear at a club called The Two Eyes, which is very famously a little tiny club in Soho that, that has been categorized, maybe rightly, as sort of the English home of rock and roll. And Peter Grant was a doorman, big guy, six foot five, huge. Between then and the time that we started the rap group, he had become a roadie and a manager for acts promoted by a guy called Don Arden, who, who was a... Uh, most interesting character in the uh, English music business. So that's how they knew each other. You have a whole chapter about Don Arden. Was he the first guy, you think, to dangle someone out a window to get their way? <laughs> yeah. He was the first person I ever heard about. I, I mean, it did happen. It, it became very apocryphal, and everyone's got different stories about it, they and learned. everyone's got different stories about who he hung out the window. But he definitely hangs somebody out the window. You, when you mentioned in your book that uh, Peter Grant trashed uh, Don Arden's office to kind of make a point to him, did that include an ass whooping that you maybe didn't mention in the book? No, no, there was no physical, okay. no physical attack. Talking of characters that are perceived as villains that I liked, um, I have to bring in here Alan Klein, and Alan Klein came to England uh, to pursue. Mickey Most wanted to represent him, and we met. And Alan taught mm -hmm. me immediately that very first meeting that I had with him and Mickey. Uh, he explained to me how the music business worked arithmetically, and it was such an eye opener because essentially the major record companies all around the world they were exploiting mm -hmm. the talent hugely. They were making huge, unbelievable margins. So to get them to increase the royalty, you go to a record company. The record company have a contract. You cannot enforce a contract for personal services. So what you have to do is you have to convince the record company that they're going to lose the artists. 
just give more money because they had a huge, huge margin. Uh, I went with Alan and five Rolling Stones to see the head of debt at record company in the UK. So we walked in and uh, Sir Edward Townsley, who was the chairman of Decca, they're sitting there and we all traipsed in. And then Alan turned to each of the Rolling Stones in turn. You know, Mick, will you do whatever I say? Yes, sir. Charlie, each one of them. And they all said yes, they would do whatever Alan said. And he said, gentlemen, you may leave. And the rolling, five Rolling Stones um, walked out. And then he said, the Rolling Stones are not going to recall for you anymore. And Edward Townsley went beetroot red and said, we have a contract. And Alan said, well, you may or may not have a contract. That's for a court to decide. But the Rolling Stones are not going to recall for you anymore. And the great thing about Alan, he didn't care if he was right. He didn't want to be like. It's the imbalanced history of rock and roll. We're talking with Lawrence Myers about his good friend, Alan Klein. And Klein was really good at getting what he wanted from the record companies. And while I was listening to you talk about him, it occurred to me how ironic it was that he later became the record company. And it's clear from your book, your affection for him, you were friends, you spoke at his funeral, but you did your own thing, your own way, and he wielded that power widely. And I, I, I have a slightly different approach. Uh, I didn't just go and say, that's, you know, my bank, not going to work for you. I would say, they're not happy. And, and uh, it was very effective. But it was, to be honest, it was easy. You know, it was like low-hanging low fruit. You had done and invested in a film early in your career. Why didn't you take the personal risk with the Monty Python film and invest in them? It's even worse. It's even even more more of a, well, an idiot Lawrence Myers is. Well, don't say that. Don't say oh, that. No, I was this, just this curious about the what one. the decision this was. This is probably the big one. Um, I had I had started a film distribution company, and I had to go back before I started the film company. I had started a record compilation company. I sort of invented it, but I was very involved in the film business. I was probably the number one independent film distributor choice at the time, and I very close close friend with John Goldstone, who um, produced the Monty Python film. And in mm-hmm. fact, when EMI pulled out from financing, which they did, I went with John and Eric Idle and Terry Gilliam on a plane, went to America to try and find the money. The film did get made because George Harrison put the money out. And then John Goldstone came to me and said, I want you to distribute the film. I'll give you very favorable terms. You don't have to give me any money up front. Just give me a decent deal and blah, blah, blah. At this time, you have to understand I was running my, my management business. I was running my compilation business. And I said to Bill Dunn, John wants to give us this film to distribute. And Bill Dunn said, I, I don't know how to do that. It's not my sort of film. You know, I want to pass. And he was the head of the company. And like an mm. idiot, I, I, you know, I passed. Wow. So there you are. Who knew? Who knew? Another who knew? Who knew a Broadway show about felines on the streets would become an international sensation? You passed on cats, right? I, I did pass on cats. Um, I, I got a call from Andrew Lloyd Webber's uh, business manager. I knew very well, Brian Brolly. He used to run MCA Records, is how I knew him. And he said, um, I'm working with Andrew Lloyd Webber, and he's got this... Uh, project called CAT, and the total capitalization, I think from memory, was £450,000, which would now cost like four or five million, they've got £45 million, pounds. and um, we're £130,000 short, and maybe your record compilation business would like to, um, to invest, but I, I said no, so there you go, who knew? 
Tune in. Talking with Lawrence Myers on the imbalanced history of rock and roll. His book is called Hunky Dory Who Knew the Subtitle. Uh, you've had the best and the worst of many things. You've had things that pass by that would make most men pull out all their hair. And a long list of fun, successful events through the years. And it all took you on an amazing ride. Uh, I have been a busy boy, it's true. I went into theater and I produced a play called End of the Rainbow, which I produced in the West End. I took it to Broadway and it was hit on Broadway. Uh, it then became a film called Judy. Cool. With Randy Zellweger, who got an Oscar. Clang, clang, clang with the trolley. Mama, please don't go to sleep now. No, 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 there's the other one. Zing, zing, zing. The kids need a home, Judy. I know what kids need. They need their mother. Can't have the world's greatest entertainer out here without a drink. Frank Sinatra's here. Frank is great, but he is no Judy Garla. And the hits just keep coming. The rock and roll biz for you, though, Lawrence, comes to an end in a weird way at a UK sub show. They were kind of a punk band. And you tell the story great in the book about this punk next to you drinking and puking all over and how he puked all over your Gucci's. Uh, they trashed the Gucci's, right? I can't remember, probably. I just want to thank you for coming on, Marcus. want to uh, say thank you for sharing some great stories with us. And you actually filled some holes that maybe people don't know as well in the big rock and roll history, the rock and roll family tree, and showed all these connections and how they're kind of tied together in weird little ways that you wouldn't expect, kind of that who knew. We appreciate it. Thank you okay. again for thank your time. Thank you very much indeed. How do, you, how do you wrap up that kind of a conversation with a guy who's been there, done that, got the T-shirt, he's got 20 of them in the closet. Which one do you want me to talk about right now? <laughs> we didn't even get to talk about some of the things that were on both of our lists of topics to discuss from the book because he was giving us so many great stories. Yeah, and he gave us stories that were tied into the book but not in the book, but, again, fused it all together. So if you're looking for a book to read about rock and roll and about some of the crazy things that happened in the 60s and 70s, and it ties all these insane pieces together, check out Hunky Dory Who Knew by Lawrence Myers. It's a fun read. If you love a book that name drops everybody they met in their life, you're going <laughs> to love this. I'm telling you, the people that he didn't get a chance to mention in the interview, It'll blow your mind. So have at it and have a fun read there. Another episode in the books here, my friend. I know. Can you believe it? We keep doing these episodes, more and more of them. Hey, let us know what you thought about today's interview with Lawrence Myers by reaching out to us on our Facebook page, Imbalance History of Rock and Roll. You can find us on Twitter. Follow us there at Imbalance Histo. They wouldn't give us the RY on Twitter. Also, just email us if you got feedback for us. It's imbalancehistory at gmail.com. You can also give us a review on whatever platform that you're listening on if you like our podcast as well. The stars are a bonus. So if you like and a us, lot of stars, we're yeah. getting a lot of stars lately. And I thank everyone for those and for the really nice things that we've seen uh, posted on Apple Podcasts. Yeah, so thank you very much for the kind reviews. And again, feedback is much appreciated if we get something incorrect because we don't know everything and we have a long way to go as far as our knowledge goes. And our knowledge growth goes. So please, if we make a boo-boo, correct it. Please. All right, boo-boo. Boo-boo. Hey. When we get, <laughs> get on the move here. And we'll get back with you next time when we get together on the Imbalance History. Of rock and roll. Hey, boo-boo.
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.